I'm continuing the series, Giving Up. And I want to start by reading to you some verses from Luke chapter 9. This is what Jesus stated. Jesus said, Then he told them what they could expect for themselves. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? If any of you is embarrassed with me and the way I'm leading you, know that the Son of Man will be far more embarrassed with you when he arrives in all his splendour in company with the Father and the holy angels. That's the message. The Amplified Version of the Bible uh, renders Luke 9.23 this way. And Jesus said to all, If any person wills to come after me, let him deny himself, disown himself, forget, lose sight of himself and his own interests. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Have we really ever heard that? Have we really ever heard that? About a hundred years ago, a wealthy, gifted young businessman in the United States named Roland was secretly a hopeless drunk. He had enough money to cover up his problem and to make sure that people didn't know the extent of his problem. But deep down, he came to realise that he was headed for either insanity or an early death. He finally reached a point of great desperation and he made the choice to travel to Europe for a year to be treated under the care of the famous psychiatrist Carl Jung. After a year of treatment, he prepared to go home. But on his way to the ship that was going to take him back to the States, he decided to just stop in at a bar. He became so drunk that he missed the departure. When he sobered up, he was devastated. And he went back to see Carl Jung. And Carl Jung said to him, You have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I have never seen one single case recover when they are as bad as you. Roland said it was like the gates of hell clanged shut on him. And he asked Jung, is there no exceptions? And this is what Carl Jung was reported as replying. Yes, one. Here and there, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences. They find God. Hope for you will be found there if it will be found at all. Here and there, alcoholics have what are called vital spiritual experiences. They find God. Hope for you will be found there if it will be found at all. Roland found God. And he had a vital spiritual experience in a little fellowship of disciples followers of Jesus called the Oxford Group. 
This little group were devoted to a program of steps that eventually led to a man who became known as Bill W. And then to another man who, became, who was known as Dr. Bob. And out of that sprung the organisation that many of us have heard about, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. You may have already known that AA got its 12 steps from this discipleship movement called the Oxford Group. The first three steps are going to come up on the screen. The first three steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are, first, we admitted we were powerless over our problems, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity if we'd let him. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. They are sometimes summarised in these three great phrases. I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. The renowned Christian author Richard Rohr in his book Breathing Underwater states that Bill Wilson was wise enough to come up with step three. But many years before, Jesus made it step one. These words of Jesus are regularly shared in churches. If anyone wants to come to follow me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his or her cross daily and follow me. What could Jesus possibly mean or intend by such words? Raw states, I'm pretty sure that Jesus meant exactly what Bill W means in step three, a radical surrendering of will to another whom we choose to trust more than ourselves. The idea of denying ourselves and taking up our cross means that we say that my desires and what I want are no longer my ultimate goal. I'm willing to give up what I want in order to do what is God's will. That is what it means to take up your cross and deny yourself. My life is no longer primarily about getting my way. The first step is the foundation for everything else. It needs to be step one. It is not to exert my will and try harder, but to surrender my will. To pray that prayer, your will be done, not mine. But this is not easy or simple. And Raw states that our inner blockage to turning over our will is only overcome by a decision. It will not happen with a feeling or a mere idea or by reciting a scripture. It is the will itself, our stubborn, self-defeating willfulness that must be deliberately handed over. There must be a concrete point of surrender. We see our ingrained will to power, to be in control, already present in two-year-old children. And then later on, we might get a glimpse in some teenagers. But by the time it gets to be in adults, many have taken control and are busy trying to engineer their lives in every way possible. So many of us have our own inner program for happiness our plans by which we believe we can be secure and in control. 
It is this conscious decision to turn our will that is so necessary in following Jesus. To make a concrete decision, a concrete point of decision, where we surrender our will to God. Raw goes on to state what makes so much religion so innocuous, ineffective, and even unexciting is that there has seldom been a concrete decision to turn over our will and our lives to the care of God. John Ortberg, in speaking about surrendering our will to God, states this, Well, there has to be a once. You don't drift into it. There has to be a once, but then there is an all of the time. It's every day. There has to be a once. You don't drift into it. There has to be a conscious, deliberate decision to turn our will over to God, to pray that prayer, your will be done on earth, starting with my life. And we seek to mean it as best we can. And then we have to be ready to pray that prayer every day. There has to be a once if we're truly going to follow this Jesus. And there has to be an everyday surrendering, turning over our will to God and praying with as much faith as we can muster. That prayer. Ortberg writes this. Here's the thing about my will. I will turn it over to God and then I take it back. I turn it over and then I take it back. I turn it over and I say, here you are, God. And then I take it back. I think I'm surrendered. I'm an introvert. So I often enjoy times of being alone. Sometimes I enjoy talking with God. And I'm home practicing the prayer of surrender. God have it all. My money, my energy, my family, my will, my relationships, my time. I surrender it all. Your will be done. He says, I'm actually quite moved by how devout my surrender is. But then my wife says, honey, would you please clean the garage like you said you were going to? And I say, no, stop interrupting me. I've surrendered everything to Jesus and you're getting in the way. God, I said your will, not her will be done. <laughs> I think I've surrendered my time until somebody wants it. I think I've surrendered my money until somebody needs it. I think I've surrendered my circumstances until they don't suit me anymore. I think I've surrendered my will until it gets crossed. Ortberg says, I've never done, I've never finished learning this prayer. Your will, not mine. But the beauty of this prayer and part of why it's foundational is that you can pray it all day long and it will never cease to energise you. It will never cease to fill you up again. It's kind of like breathing. Living with a freshly surrendered will is foundational. The big book of AA puts it like this. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. A daily reprieve. A daily rescue from slipping back into a destructive pattern of addiction. But this reprieve is contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. 
on being surrendered to God, on surrendering our will daily to God. That is just profound truth about the nature of discipleship and following Jesus. It is this daily deal of coming humbly and praying our best prayer of surrender. Raw states every day is a day where we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. How can I best serve you? Your will, not mine, be done. These are the thoughts that must go with us constantly. We can exercise our will along this line all we wish. It is the proper use of the will. Surrender is often viewed as a weak act for weak people. But what if surrender is the pathway to power? Spiritual power. What if surrender is the necessary path to liberation? When it comes to surrendering our will, turning our will and our lives over to God, a power that greater than us, well, there has to be a once. You don't drift into it, but then it's all of the time. It has to be every day. Finally, Richard Raw makes this statement. You will never turn your will and your life over to any other kind of God except a loving and merciful one. Why would you? You will never turn your will and your life over to any other kind of God except a loving and merciful one. Why would you? He's right. Why would you turn your will and your life over to a God unless you're convinced at some level that that God is good, loving and merciful? And for many, many people in our society, that's where they stall. That's where they balk. Because it can seem that God isn't that good. And we in the church need to be careful not to just brush that off with glib cliches. I stand here and speak of handing your will and your lives over to God, surrendering your will to, to him. And I have to ask myself, why would you? Why would you? I know of good people, godly people, who are part of this faith community who have cancer. And it seems as though it is winning. It seems as though the cancer is winning. And they are suffering. And those around them share that pain. And why doesn't God do what, in my mind, seems to be the good and kind thing? Why doesn't he do what I think he certainly is capable of doing? Why is it that so many who are connected to this faith community still suffer and struggle because of injustices and the horrors of the past? This past week, Emma, who works as part of our ministry team, took one of our young people who is an orphan. Both of her parents were killed in war overseas. She took this young lady to see a specialist. And this specialist spent time with Emma, explaining that this young lady has some ongoing health issues 
because of all the trauma she experienced in her life before she reached the age of six. And the specialist explained to Emma that because those first six years are so formative in so many areas of development, that trauma is having ongoing impact in that teenager's health. This child who has already suffered so much. Where was this good and loving God? Where is he now that she should still suffer? For a number of years, we had a young lady in our youth group who had been sold in the slave markets of Sinjar. She was a Zidi. She was regarded by ISIS as subhuman. And so she was sold as property to an ISIS fighter. She experienced horrors that are difficult to hear. And at times at youth group on a Friday night, she would simply collapse. The trauma that she had experienced would just overwhelm her and she would just collapse. And we would then move all the youth group to another room while we called for an ambulance and Emma would sit with her and then go with her to A&E and be with her until she was either admitted or allowed to go back to where she was living. This ha happened multiple times. She only has her younger sister here in Australia and at that time her English was so limited. So Emma became the one who sat for hours at the hospital, organised support, got food, picked her up, made sure she could be part of the youth group. But her suffering, her trauma was and is so raw and real, it was confronting. It was unsettling. She was a child when she was sold. Where was God? It's God who's so good. These people have names. They are here with us. Their suffering and pain is real. And so I want to say to you that it is not easy for me to stand up here and say, surrender your will and your life to God. Because why would you? Why would you? Unless at some level you believe that God is good and merciful. So how do we reconcile these stories of suffering and loss to our claim about our God? A God that we've sung about being good. A God we're going to sing to later on about surrendering to. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther used to encourage his students to do. He would simply say to his students that they need to flee the hidden God and run to Jesus Christ. Flee the hidden God and run to Jesus Christ. This one who came to reveal God to us. Philip Yancey states, if I use a magnifying glass to examine a fine painting, the object in the centre of the glass stays crisp and clear, while around the edges the view grows increasingly distorted. 
Yancey says, for me, Jesus has become the focal point. When I speculate about things such as the problem of pain and suffering or providence versus free will, everything becomes fuzzy. But if I look at Jesus himself, at how he treated actual people who suffered and were in pain, if I look at Jesus and I see his compassionate care, if I look at Jesus and I hear his call to action on behalf of those who are powerless and marginalised, clarity is restored. I can worry myself into a state of inaction and dissatisfaction. I can overthink questions like what good does it do to pray if God already knows everything? Jesus silences such questions. He prayed. So should we. For me, the question comes down to if it's true that Jesus is God with skin on, if it's true and God is in a word Christ-like, then we have a God who weeps with us. We have a God who is for us. We have a God who chooses not to be safe or comfortable or distant. If God is Christ-like, then despite all the things that seem to sometimes make life so confusing and so difficult, he is here. He is with us. He has promised that. If God is Christ-like, he is no stranger to suffering and pain. And if he's Christ-like, he is love. For me, it is easier to surrender my will and my life to that God. It is easier for me to surrender when I believe that there is nothing but love and mercy on the other side of the surrender. Jesus said, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat, I am. To surrender our wills and our lives to God, there needs to be a once. You don't drift into it. Has that been part of your story? Has there been a point at some point in your story where you've simply got to the point where you've been prepared to say, I'm going to surrender my will and my life to this God who I believe loves me and is merciful. And then it has to be all the time. It's every day. And I guess the question I need to ask is, has that been missing in your attempt to follow Jesus? Has that been missing in your attempt to follow Jesus? Did you make a point of surrender back here? But since then, you've just kind of taken back control. And I want to also say that it cannot be a conditional surrender. You cannot put conditions with it. I have seen over the years and been guilty of it in my own life. I've tried to put conditions on how much or what I will surrender and what I want to keep control over. I want to say honestly that it doesn't work. I cannot hold out on God. That isn't surrender. 
I cannot say to God, I will turn over my will and my life, but I want to still hold on to resentment. I want to still hold on to unforgiveness because I have a right to that. Those people did this. And so I'm going to surrender, but only up to this point. I cannot say I will turn over my will and my life, but when it comes to my money, well, that's mine. And tithing and offerings, well, we'll see how I feel when it's more convenient or when I'm more comfortable. I cannot say I'll turn over my will and my life, but when it comes to my time and serving those who are sometimes ungrateful and so undeserving, well, I have better things to do. Conditional surrender is no surrender at all. Conditional surrender is no surrender and it will never work. There needs to be a once and there needs to be an every day. And surrender will only make sense as you come to know this man, Jesus, as you come to hear his claims about being the very son of God, about being the ultimate revelation of God. And you understand the love that he embodies and what that says about God. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us all, including me. But at the end of the service, some of the elders will gather down the front as they do every week to pray and to just spend time with people. It may be that as we've spoken, you've realised that you've been doing a whole lot of things, but you've never, ever got to the point of surrendering, of actually making that concrete decision to say, I'm going to surrender. I want to surrender my will. I want to surrender my life to the care of God. I want to trust in this bloke, Jesus, that he was telling the truth, not just about being the son of God, but about everything else as well. Maybe you want to talk to somebody about that because you've never, ever made a concrete decision about that. Or maybe you want to talk to one of the elders and ask for prayer about the daily deal of surrendering every day, not taking back and not giving conditional surrender. I really believe that surrender is really important. I believe that it is the way to spiritual power and it is the way to liberation. But surrender isn't easy because we all love to be in control. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to just join with me as I pray. And then we're going to sing a song about surrender. And I'm going to ask you to listen closely and watch the words closely. Would you pray with me, please? Father, if we're really honest, all of us in this room struggle at some point with this deal about surrendering to you. For some of us, um, there is specific things that we hold on to so tightly. 
And right now I'm going to ask that you help us to see them for what they are. And Lord, I pray that for some of us, um, we might be, have been pushing back against you because we have all sorts of reasons in our head about why we can't trust you and what we think about you. Lord, I pray that you will help us to see Jesus and to see him as the ultimate revelation of who you are. And to begin to understand clearly how good and merciful you are. I, I believe that about you. And Father, I want to pray that you will give us courage right now. I pray that we would be open to what your spirit is saying to us and to your leading. And Father, I want to acknowledge right now that in this room there are people who are suffering and people who have suffered. And we don't want to minimise that. We don't want to be glib about that at all. And right now I want to pray for those people in this room who have health um, issues. Lord, I pray for their healing. I believe that you are good. I believe that you are great. But I also know that I need to trust you, even when I don't understand. But I pray for those people who are struggling with health. And I pray for those in our midst who've been through stuff that I can't even begin to imagine. And that has caused great pain and continues to cause great pain. Lord, would you bring healing, please? And would you bring comfort? And would you help us to be a church who do our part in that as well? Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity today to remember our mums and to celebrate the mums around us. Help us today to do that well as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.